This program is brought to you by Emory University. Please join me in welcoming Reverend Sehu. Uh, good morning. Good morning. Uh, it is a pleasure uh, to be here with you. Uh, to Dean Love uh, for her gracious uh, invitation uh, and to uh, the students who have helped to coordinate and Sister Alice, where is she? Uh, she's a, you know, she's been the boss of me up for my, for a few months now, and so we want to say thank you. I see uh, uh, our dear friend Reverend Joy Orr, who I know from D.C., and she's doing a Ph.D., and we're extremely proud of her and my friends from the Open Door, that old, that holy place. Uh, I'm so glad to see you, and then my dear friend Sam my brother from another mother. <laughs> With the Heartland Initiative, we have met around this fundamental question of Palestine. What does it mean since the Israeli consensus has been broken? And so these are wonderful and interesting times. And to all of you for taking time out of your day for being here. How many of y'all first year, first year in Divs? First year. My God. How many, and go raise your hand if you plan on going into ministry. Lord have mercy. <laughs> you sure you want to do that? <laughs> you, you sure? Can you do something else? Because if you can do something else, it means you weren't called. We only do this work because we can do nothing else. So I pray that you cannot do anything else and you come to this work with that sensibility. So we're going to wrestle a little bit. I typically don't mean to read from a manuscript. You know, I'm an old Pentecostal preacher. We just let the Holy Ghost hit us and we go to work. But I want to test something out with you. And so I want to talk a little bit about a liberation theology of Ferguson. I want to begin with a dialogical, dialogical assumption. If you tell me what you believe about Jesus, I can tell you what you believe about Ferguson. All right. I want to read uh, uh, a little bit from um, the Gospel of Mark, the 16th chapter, the 9th through the 11th verse. I'm going to preach a little bit if that's all right. Mark, the 16th chapter, the 9th through the 11th verse says, Now when Jesus was risen early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven devils. And he went and told them that he had, she went and told them that she had been with him as they mourned and wept. And they, when they heard that he was alive, and had been seen by her, believed not. And then I want to read from another holy text. James Baldwin, the fire next time. <laughs> Dear James, I have begun this letter five times and torn it up five times. I keep seeing your face, which is also the face of your father and my brother. Like him, you are tough and dark and vulnerable and moody, with a very definitive tendency to sound truculent because you want no one to think you are soft. You may be like your father in this. 
I don't know, but certainly both of you and your father resemble him so much physically. Well, he is dead. Never saw you, and he had a terrible life. He was defeated long before he died because at the bottom of his heart, he believed what white people said about him. You can only be destroyed by believing that you are really what the white world calls a nigger. James Baldwin, the fire next time. Jesus was a nigger. <laughs> to be a nigger now and then is to contend with the arbitrary violence, legislative repression, and ontological uncertainty. Every moment of one's life is policed and every action is questioned. Where and how a nigger lives is subjugated to interrogation. Jesus, like all niggers, is empirically unjustifiable yet existentially irrefutable. His people came from an infamous little place that was known for nothing good. The nigger story sounds like a blues man filled with too much Jack Daniels and too little hope singing in an empty juke joint on an early Sunday morning. He was born into the world in the body of an unwed teenage mother among an unimportant people in an unimportant part of the world as a Palestinian living under occupation. His birth carried the stench of illegitimacy. It was rumored that he was the son of a rapist Roman centurion. His mother claimed that he was the son of God and his people's liberation Though they would be torn asunder, he gathered a ragged movement whose dogged spirit was only held together by the simple belief freedom was coming. Everywhere they went, refugees gathered and left believing that there was something greater than the empire. Yet corrupt religious leaders conspired with the empire to silence dissonance and to orchestrate hierarchical harmony, rendering justice mute. To live under occupation without resistance is a portrait of self-hate. Thus religious leaders attempting to navigate a treacherous political terrain often sided with the powers to be. Yet this nigger and his nigger followers were challenged what it meant to be a Palestinian living under occupation. By treating the needs of people as holy, they troubled the religious and political elite's conception of themselves. A refusal to believe what the empire has said about you is to be free. While their hearts were bent toward silencing him, the nigger's greatest offense was disrupting the, final, the financialization of the court of the poor, which was the house of prayer. The nigger so disrupted the empire that he was arrested on false charges, convicted in a kangaroo court, and crucified with two other surrectionists. He was executed by the state, and the day of his state execution is called good. And every other day in America is Good Friday. Death at the hands of the state. It happens so often the news of such a tragedy elicits a rather ordinary response. They killed another one. As the death toll rings throughout Christendom's past, state violence is ever present. Ferguson, America's Nazareth. 
has given birth to a new theology at work in the world and the irrelevancy of the church was made evident on West Florissant, the Tahir Square of the Midwest. In the early days of August, a poor, queer, black, and female Jesus took up a cross and faced tanks and tear gas and rubber bullets. In the life of most of young folks on the street, the church has been a site of condemnation and rejection. It is in the streets with righteous indignation that God in the flesh has come to us yet again. Night after night, all but consumed by the billowing tear gas clouds, a cry from the wilderness could be heard from the police. And religious leaders were more concerned with young people's profanity than the profane conditions that they live in. Early in the morning, lowly and angry, they still rose. If there is no remission of sin without the shedding of blood, then Michael Brown's blood might be our salvation. To strip Jesus' cross of his political content is to continue to lie. And to continue to lie that black life does not matter. For Jesus, a first century nigger who led a love rebellion against the empire was crucified. And the moment in the liturgical calendar that signifies not what is happening in the past, but what is happening now. God in the flesh, a Palestinian peasant, was crucified at the hands of the state and blessed by an apostate clergy. Jesus no more than a handyman. The translation of him being a carpenter is inaccurate. It is actually he who works with his hands. Jesus was not a skilled laborer, but he was one step from an untouchable. A handyman, you know him. He'd come by your house and say, let me sweep your leaves up or I'll sweep this snow for you for two or three dollars. He's the master. He's a jack of all trade and the master of none. He'd come fix your light and half the lights in the house don't work. <laughs> your savior, my savior, a handyman, born to a teenage mother among an unimportant people in an unimportant part of the world, the one who we say, come let us adore him. He alone is worthy, is a handyman. And this handyman, shook the empire to its core. The lie of the empire was that their lives did not matter, and he refused it. Crucifixion in and of itself was quite ordinary act. It was not unique to Jesus and not unique in a death-dealing civilization. Thousands of Palestinians were hung on a tree for people to contemplate the mere prospect of rebellion and that their insurrection would not be tolerated. In black communities, police are no more than Roman centurions, occupiers who operate without impunity. In the first century Palestine, a gospel could only be written and distributed by Caesar, articulating one's rights and benefits in the Roman Empire. The leader of the Roman Empire had sole authority to administer the gospel, yet the followers of the poor Palestinian lived the gospel that caused the empire to settle. Like in the days of the Roman Empire, a new gospel has been written every day in the streets of Ferguson. A radically queer, black, poor, woman-led story of resistance in the face of death. So Good Friday is perpetual, but it is not permanent. Every act of resistance, laying a teddy bear, a makeshift memorial in an unimportant place among unimportant people, is holy and transformative. The task before Christianity is to see Jesus in the streets being hated, haunted, and haunted by the powers today. 
The Black Life Matters movement is a cry from the cross of American democracy. Good Friday is now. This day is only good because the empire did not have the last word. As a child of the black Pentecostal church, the church of God in Christ, I read the world with a Pentecostal hermeneutic of suspicion. I read the signs and wonders of the American empire with the sanctified refusal to believe that the material conditions of black people are ontological. In a word, we are not doomed. While our situatedness is absurd and our tradition has made meaning out of the existential chitterlings of America, the mythological approach of cleaning, boiling, and, prepar and preparation is the one I choose to understand the black church in American democracy. The typology then is reflected of one of that process, whether it be the social conservative, the social democrat, or the liberationist, womanist, or democratic socialist traditions are ways in which one can describe this rubric known as the black church. The black church which large is forced into a perpetual reconstituting of a self in a civilization that denies their personhood. So all varieties of the black church are concerned with the making of a self. Black dignity, personal piety, black self-respect, the politics of respectability, and black self-responsibility, self-determination rather, personal responsibility. The self-constituting is one of the given more emphasis in the social conservative, social gospel, and liberationist black churches, but it is even at work in the democratic socialist tradition. The black church is a living and breathing institution so riddled with all of the beautiful contradictions that we humans exude. I opt for the democratic socialist tradition because I believe it embodies the best of the other categories while holding steadfast to a systematic critique and that it is porous enough to absorb the difference which makes it unique. Pentecostalism like socialism intervenes and breaks open new sets of possibilities, a working out of a particular salvation. Like my grandfather, I am an ordained elder in the church God in Christ, the nation's largest Pentecostal and black denomination. God in Christ is what the old saints used to call it. Flourished in the Delta region during the height of lynching. While the violence of the Jim Crow era, within the violence of the Jim Crow era, Pentecostalism and black socialist desires emerged from the same eschatological yearnings for a new way of being. The emphasis on holiness mirrors a cry for worker solidarity and emboldens black people to resist hegemony both existentially and economically. In the Arkansas Delta where I am from, the geography of lynching overlays the geography of socialism which overlays the geography of Pentecostalism. A map depicting the areas where lynchings often occurred mirrors the expansion of Pentecostalism and socialist organizing in the region. The harshness of the formative years of my grandfather's social location served as a, pitiful, a pivotal development of my own brand of socialist Pentecostalism in the sense that it is heavily Grumpsian because I take seriously the culture of everyday people to resist on their own terms and that I come from a lumpen proletariat but they are nonetheless dignified. That this tradition of militant socialist Pentecostalism that is characterized by signs and wonders, social movements, speaking in tongues, democratic language, and prophetic rage, holiness, creating a just world. To be biblical, there is room at the cross who are all heavy laden, queer, black, poor, female, differently abled, young, and old. Recently, black feminist scholar Brittany Cooper noted that liberation must also include joy and pleasure. 
Pentecost politics and socialism alone cannot account for this. The material, the materialist privileging of socialism obscures the non-material in such a way that the project is rendered insufficient. Marx is radical and socialists thought often an important understanding of the world, but they can't account for being the non-material constituting of a self in the world. Within the framework of the American empire now and then the material conditions are so devastating, draconian and disinheriting that one has no other option but to kill itself. It is the meditation by Albert Camus and his terrible meditation on suicide. Understanding that the, his conclusion, I understand how Camus arrives at the conclusion of why suicide is a moral and ethical option. I just don't arrive at it because my grandmother says I'm too busy working for my Jesus. I ain't got time to die. That we come from a people who understand that the material conditions are as such, but we don't let the material conditions have the last word. So we bear witness to a certain theological project that is thoroughly un-American because we acknowledge the darkness, but we just don't let the darkness have the last word. So my grandmama said, Jesus is a bright and morning star. A lily in the valley, water in dry places, a doctor in short room, a lawyer in the courtroom. These are theological significations in such a way that they acknowledge the truth of the darkness, but never letting the darkness have the last word. Part of the black religious tradition is to look squarely at the material, the suicidal material conditions and say no. Accordingly, Albert Camus knows that the rebel, when he says no, they're saying yes. In the response, black people have called upon material, non-material forces to sustain them in the face of a hellish materiality. Their sense of joy and pleasure was not dictated by the happenings of hegemony, but their hope in heaven. My grandmother used to sing a song, this joy that I have. The world didn't give it to me. And the world didn't take it away. And the world, the materiality which seeks to discipline and punish black existence, offers that which can be taken away. Black religion posits an alternative source of joy, a holy other, God, the most moved mover. But God is actually secondary in this curse of joy. A God working and toiling in history intervenes in time and space in order to hold at bay suicidal conditions. It is the gathering of the believers. The struggle to make some consent, collective sense of the bleak materiality that is the primary source of joy. It is the calling upon the non-material joy, love, pleasure, eros, and religious ecstasy, community gathering, musical, cultural, and homiletical tradition. Black religion offers a counter-narrative to the death-dealing culture. To sing and to dance one's way out of the pit of the American democracy and the empire thereof constitutes black religion, the zeitgeist of resistance that permeates our music, our dance, our poetry, our style, our music, the way in which we move through time and space is a non-material response to the material conditions. But if the saints are right, and Slavo Zizek are correct, we are truly living in the last days. The end of the American empire is at hand. The global collapse of the economy and the attendant global resistance characterized by the public occupation of public space and the rejection of traditional leadership has created a new model of leadership, queer, black, poor, largely female. This new leadership appears on the social landscape to affirm that humanity under unhumane in under inhumane situatedness. It is in this context that the Black Lives Matters movement has emerged. A hashtag, an organizing principle crafted in the wake of Trayvon Martin's extrajudicial killing, a phenomenon that happens every other day in America. Black Lives Matters was co-created by two 
queer black women, Patrice Collins and Elise Garza and their sister Comrade Opal. All three women lead radical edge organizations that focus on organizing the least of these, domestic workers, black diaspora immigrants, and victims of police brutality, particularly trans folks of color. Thus, a black, queer, poor, transnational feminism with a stinging critique of capitalism sits at the center of this new political moment. Moreover, if black life matters is the word, then Ferguson is the word made flesh. It is a queer word with the black soul. Ferguson, America's Nazareth, is populated with urban protestants. The lynching-like display of Mike Brown's body prompted a level of resistance that has not been seen in a half century. In terms of the duration and impact, it is second only to the Montgomery bus boycott. The way in which religious practice and faith claims are at work in the streets of Ferguson is fascinating and telling. The politics of respectability has blinded many religious leaders, preventing them from seeing the holy work on the ground in Ferguson. If you tell me again what you believe about Ferguson, about Jesus, I can tell you what you believe about Ferguson. Our imagination is concerned concerning Jesus is impoverished, while the liberation and womanist and feminist, black, queer, and historically other theologies on general have attempted to rescue the image and the incarnation of Christ from the clutches of heterosexist patriarchal capitalism. They dominate a discourse, the dominant discourse about the person of Christ is a neoliberal at best and right-wing reactionary all too often. In the streets of Ferguson and the Black Lives Matters throughout the world, I see the makings of a new radical form of governance that must be taken up by shaking off the politics of neoliberalism, which is preoccupied with individualism and privatization, that the state continues to overreach, and the people continue to resist in every sector of society. The democracy that is grounded in the life chances of those who suffer presenting a faith Presenting a faith in a new way of being becomes more and more possible. We must break open the meaning of church. Just as the dangerous memory intervenes into history, it must also intervene in the very notion of the church. I am, po I am positing a Pentecostal, an existentialist revival, not only in liberation theology, but also in theology writ large. Reading the signs and wonders as, meaning, as a meaning-making act is revolutionary. Our ability to squeeze the slave out of ourselves as resist with love and pressure will be key to the praxis that moves the church to reimagine re itself. Early in the days of Ferguson, Phil Agnew, founder of the Dream Defenders, challenged me. He said, Seku, Ferguson will determine whether or not the church is still relevant. And he is right. Christianity is, is at yet another crossroads. We must have the eyes to see and the ears to hear the things that God has prepared. Durkheim's notion of collective essence offers a way to read the protest as a religious gathering that makes faith claims. Something happens to us when we gather in the streets in Ferguson, night after night, tear gas after tear gas, rubber bullets being betrayed by every level of government. And they shoot tear gas, and I've seen them night after night. They say, go home, and they say, no, you go home. We ain't going nowhere. you. We home. Night after night, and part of what the protest has done is created the political space. Martin Luther, to paraphrase Martin Luther King, social movements are thermostats. They set political climate. 
elections and legislation are thermometers. They measure political climate. So the, the election, the tripling of the African-American presence on the board uh, of the city council in Ferguson has become we've stayed in the street and we created the political climate so that elections and legislation can measure where we are in our movement. But we must stay in the street. And so something happens when we gather in the street and community and protest state violence against the most vulnerable. Against the most vulnerable. There is a spirit of joyful yet mournful resistance that saturates the night air. In the midst of the crowd, a protest, a protest leader, often a young queer black woman, calls on all the gathered to re repeat our movement's faith claim. I believe we will win. Thank you. The preceding program is copyrighted by Emory University.